Welcome to episode 68 of the Strength Through Vulnerability podcast. Let's get into it. Welcome to another episode. It's so good to be here with you, and I'm super pumped about this week's episode. It's whenever you can combine humor and mental health, I feel like you're doing a really good thing. And that's what happens in this conversation. I interviewed the mental health comedian, Frank King. Frank is, I mean, he's hilarious. You guys are going to see that for yourselves. It's a very fun show. Um, You will laugh. You will potentially cry. There's some really deep things, and he still finds a way to bring humor into it, which was so, so fun. And, uh, you know, he's just a really awesome guy. He's somebody who's lived with depression and chronic suicidality. And you, if you don't necessarily know what that means, he will explain exactly what it means. So keep on listening and you will hear what it is. Um, but he's just got such a powerful story. He's an incredible speaker. In fact, he's a TEDx talk coach on top of being the mental health comedian, being a speaker himself. So he's just a ball of fun or just a... I don't know, ball of fun just sounded weird. He's he's a ton of fun, and it was so fun having a conversation with him, and I think you're going to really enjoy this interview, which is coming at you right, I don't know why I'm starting to sing, coming at you right now. Frank, it's so good to be talking to you again. How you doing? You know, people ask me, how are you surviving the pandemic? Well, here's the deal. I've had two aortic valve replacements, a double bypass, a heart attack, three stents. I have major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation, and I lost to a puppet, a duck puppet on the old star search. So this is not the worst thing that's ever happened to me. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's a lot. That's a lot. And (laughs) so already connecting with the listeners, you know, Frank, you, from a brief conversation that we've had before this, you you shared quite a bit with me, and I I think it's going to be so helpful to learn more about your story and the work that you're doing now especially with being in a pandemic and uh, you know, understanding that you've had your experiences, you live with, with depression. You, mm-hmm. I think you use the term chronic suicidality. Is that the right phrasing? That is correct. And so these are, you know, huge issues always, but especially right now during the pandemic too. So, you know, I would love to hand it over to you to describe a little bit about like, what's the work that you're doing now? Because it's, it's pretty unique and it's cool. Well, the, first let's define chronic suicidal ideation mm. because, or chronic suicidality. Mm-hmm. The, it means for people like me, people in my tribe, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And when I say small, a couple of years ago, my car broke down. I had three thoughts unbidden, get it fixed, buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. Mm-hmm. That's chronic suicidal ideation. It's a way of coping. And every time I've spoken in the last six years, except for once, there has been somebody, sometimes more than one somebody in the audience who had that, and we're not aware it had a name, just thought there was some kind of freak because of the way their brain worked, and completely alone. And a young woman came up to me after a college presentation. She goes, I want to thank you for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She goes, but I got to tell you, it made me weep. I didn't make you weep. She goes, well... You know your story about your car, get it fixed, buy a new one, just kill yourself? I go, yeah. She goes, I have, I've had those thoughts all my life. I didn't know that had a name. I just thought I was some kind of freak, all alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, I realized for the first time in my life, I'm not alone, and I wept. Mm-hmm. So that for me, that's extremely therapeutic for me. You know, Maybe pushing somebody just far enough off the path to suicide, they'll live a normal life simply by letting them know they in fact are not alone. That people with mental illness often think it's just them. I've been, I've been there. Yeah. I, um, I, the reason I got into comedy was that my fourth TEDx is called Suicide, The Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking. Hmm. And what happened was I was married to my high school college sweetheart, miserably. She's a wonderful woman. We didn't belong together. But you know what they say, opposites attract. She was pregnant, I wouldn't. Hmm. Um, the... <laughs> selling insurance for her dad's company because that's what she wanted me to do. Not going to open mic night at the comedy store because that's what I knew I should be doing. And because of my depression and chronic suicidality, I realized I was going to kill myself if I didn't make some changes. Mm-hmm. So my second thought was, well, wait a minute, I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. 
If it doesn't, hell, I can still kill myself. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how I got into comedy. I mean, there are a few wow. things more powerful on earth than somebody with absolutely nothing to lose. Because I was going to die if I stayed put, I was able to put, you know, put it all on one roll of the destiny dice, mm. figuring, what the hell? You know, might as well give it a shot. And fortunately, it worked out. And I started doing comedy day after Christmas, 85. Back, you know, back when uh, we were talking about this off the air, back when Dennis Miller and Ellen and Rosie were just comics working the road. And we worked with my wife and I. I asked my girlfriend right before I went on the road, hey, listen, I'm going on the road to do stand-up comedy professionally. Do you want to come along for the ride? Figure she'd go, yeah, right. She goes, yeah, okay. <laughs> so we gave up our jobs and our apartment, packed the car, and we were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. No home. Comedy club to comedy club, hotel to hotel. Yeah, for seven years and change. <laughs> then I did a little radio. Um, went back to Raleigh, my hometown, North Carolina. There's a number one morning show. Then they were hiring comedians back then to work morning shows. And I, I took that morning show, that number one morning show, and I drove it all the way to number six in 18 months. Yeah, pretty much didn't just drive it in the ground, drove it into Middle Earth and got fired as you do in radio. And then jumped to the the corporate comedy circuit the rubber chicken circuit of the convention mm. <laughs> rode that till about 2007 made stupid money because people corporate people hr will pay a ton of money for clean comedy because it's mm. such a you know it's it's it you're taking a chance handing a comedian a microphone in front of an audience at a convention <laughs> yeah. you know because they can do a lot of damage in a couple of minutes mm. so with the recession however by 2010 Business had dropped off 80%. We filed Chapter 7 bankruptcy, lost everything. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Mm. Uh, spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. Um, the Then when I tell that story, people kind of nervously laugh, like, should we be laughing at that? <laughs> yeah. Then I followed up with the true story, which is a friend of mine came to see me do a keynote. And he'd never heard me say I didn't pull the trigger. So he comes up afterwards. He goes, hey, man. How come he didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound slightly less disappointed? Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Which gets a much bigger laugh. Now they get it. Now they get the idea. This is not going to be your average suicide prevention keynote at this point. Mm -hmm. So people ask me, did the comedy hold you back from getting bookings as a suicide prevention speaker? No, you got it backwards. They hire me because I have lived experience, you know, with the suicidality and so forth, mm -hmm. because I have training in suicide prevention. So I have takeaways, you know, action items. And because I can leaven it with some organic, you know, not jokes, but funny personal stories about my journey in, in the world of mental illness. And so that's when I began. And the problem, the big problem was, how do you rebrand from a comedian who's a funny speaker to a speaker who is simply funny? Mm. And the TEDx seemed like the ideal opportunity. So I applied for the TEDx. I got the first one I ever applied for. Wow. And age 56, I came out on stage in that TEDx you've been watching mm -hmm. as depressed and suicidal. My family didn't know, my friends, my wife had no idea because people with mental illness, oftentimes great actors, cover up, don't want to burden anybody with it. Until mm -hmm. so I came out in front of, as we say down south, in front of God in the world <laughs> as depressed and suicidal. But what I discovered in the process was even though people don't talk about depression, thoughts of suicide, if you bring it up, pretty much everybody's got a story. It's almost like they've been waiting for somebody to utter those magic words to give voice to it. I mean, people that I barely know have just recently met tell me the most amazing stories. I'm on a ship, a cruise ship working, and it was breakfast, couldn't find a seat. There's a woman at a table for two, and there's an empty chair. And so I pointed, she nodded, I sat. She looks up, she goes, hey, are you the comedian? I go, hey, do you like the comedy show? She goes, I love the comedy show. I said, then I'm the comedian. <laughs> she starts laughing. She goes, what would you say if I told you I hated the comedy show? You know, they tell me I look a whole lot like him. She said, is cruise comedy all you do? That's a question I get all the time. I said, no, I'm a public speaker. And I said, listen, if you don't mind me bragging, because I got nobody else to tell, I just got a note that I, I've scored my first TEDx talk. She goes, I love the TED Talks. What's the topic? Now, I've had this conversation many times. I was almost certain I knew what was coming. So I said to her, depression and suicide started to count down in my head. Three, two, one. She goes, I tried to kill myself twice. We've just met. She goes, first time in college, half-hearted, not really a big deal. 
Second time, far more serious. Frank, I graduated college, graduated medical school, had the knowledge, had the equipment. She said, I had the IV started in my ankle. I loaded up the syringe in one hand. I'm sorry, I got the death cocktail in one hand, syringe in the other, getting ready to load it up. Phone rings. Do I pick it up? She said, I thought I'd better because it might be somebody who worried, come over, interrupt. Picks it up as a 13-year-old son. She goes, I don't know if he had a premonition or heard something in my voice, but he said, Mom, don't do anything. So I didn't. I didn't give up on the idea of suicide, but I was not going to do it that day because I knew he'd always feel guilty. Wasn't there something he could do or say to stop me? Good news is there are things you could do. There are things you can say, and we can talk about that later if you like. Mm. I said, well, how old is he now? She goes, he's 21. I said, does he know his phone call saved your life? And this next sentence became the theme of my TEDx. She goes, no. How do you start that conversation? Mm. I thought that's the key. That's what I've learned, is that if you start the conversation, people have permission to give voice to these feelings and experiences. My clients oftentimes tell me when I arrive, hey, look, we just brought you in here to start the conversation. Mm -hmm. Because if I get up on stage, especially as a man, and I'm vulnerable, and, you know, and talk about my struggles, and I get a little choked up, it, 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 it's, there's something powerful about that. You know, and again, and we do a general Q&A when I get done. And I tell the audience, look, we'll do a general Q&A. And then when I get done with that, you know, if you have a question you didn't want to ask in front of everybody, like, hey, I'm crazy. Can you help me? Mm -hmm. I'll handle individual questions or whatever afterwards till we're done. And sometimes it's two people lined up afterwards. Sometimes it's eight mm -hmm. with a story, a question, a concern, you know, like that. So it's, it's very rewarding knowing you have that kind of impact on you know on people's lives very therapeutic for me yeah wow frank there's so much there um number one i want to say thank you for doing the work that you do because it's oh. incredibly important um number two when you were when you were telling me or when you were telling all of us the story about that woman on the cruise ship you know i'm listening to this ted talk that you mentioned um for all the listeners out there it's called a matter of laugh or death by mm -hmm. frank king and um, there's a very similar story about your life and what caused you to not pull the trigger. Do you, do you mind sharing that? Oh, no. Um, I, I, it, there are three things, uh, a three-legged stool for suicidality. Leg number one is you withdraw socially or you move physically. Hmm. Number two is that you have already decided you can cross that barrier. You know, even infants have a, an amazing will to live, but you've crossed the barrier where you're willing to pull the trigger. And the third thing is something called burdensomeness. You firmly believe, I firmly believe, the world would be better off without me. People say, suicide's a selfish act. Weren't you thinking about, or weren't they thinking about the people they left behind? In fact, most often the people who are dying by suicide are thinking about the people they're leaving behind and they think they will be better off. So. In the mind of the person who is, you know, is, is hell-bent on suicide, it is a selfless act. Irrational, but in their mind, selfless, not selfish. Mm -hmm. So we declared bankruptcy, but I had a million-dollar life insurance policy. Mm -hmm. So I thought, I could fix this. The trick was the policy had a two-year, what is known colloquially as, as a suicide clause. It's really called the incontestability clause, but suicide clause is the common name for it. Meaning I had to have the policy two years, 24 months. Otherwise, if I died by suicide at 22 months, which is how long I'd had it, mm -hmm. my wife would just get the premiums returned to her. She wouldn't get the million dollars. So I had to wait. I called my insurance agent. I said, how long have I had that policy? And I didn't tell him why I was asking. Mm -hmm. And he, you know, he looked it up and he goes, it's 22 months. And then it realized, he realized what I was asking. I really wasn't asking how long I had the policy. I was asking for permission to kill myself. So he goes, no, don't do it. Because he delivered checks. People called him. Insurance is paid up. Next thing you know, they've died by suicide. He delivers the death benefit. Hmm. So, and he told me later when he hung up the phone that day, he told his wife, I think Frank's going to kill himself. I just, you know. And he also said, I didn't know what, he said, I didn't know what to say to you when I realized what you were up to. And he said, I just said a quick prayer. And what came out was don't do it. And I said, Graham, it doesn't often matter. Often doesn't matter what you say in a moment like that. It's the fact you step out of your comfort zone and say something, mm. you know, let somebody know that somebody else cares whether you live or die. So I had to wait two months 
before I can pull the trigger. And since I have chronic suicidal ideation and I'm willing to do it anytime, I'm thinking, hell, I can wait two months, mm-hmm. then I'll kill myself. So fortunately, by two months in a day, I don't even remember the day. I wasn't, you know, like counting the days till I could do it. And it passed without me noticing. Things must have gotten a little better. You know, the bankruptcy went through, the phone call stopped. Mm-hmm. And we began to rebuild uh, 10 years ago, by the way, 10 years ago this past August. I know that because Chapter 7 bankruptcy stays on your credit for 10 years. Wow. And August 9th, it dropped off uh, on my credit, finally. Congratulations. Oh, man, that was huge. Yeah, mm. it's, uh, you know, my FICO score jumped 140 points. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And uh, because, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a big black mark on your credit. Yeah. But anyway, so, um, yeah, we started over. We, we downsized to the little house we're in now, which is where my wife grew up down outside Eugene, Oregon. And that's all we had really had the cars, our clothes, our pets and the house. Mm-hmm. Couldn't even afford a subscription to the newspaper. A friend bought me a subscription to the newspaper and I wept when I got the first one because mm. it was the first normal thing that had happened in quite some time. So anyway, that's why I didn't pull the trigger. Um, and in the TED talk, you, you find out that my grandmother died by suicide, my great aunt, and my mother and I found my great aunt. I was four years old and I screamed for days. And if you're already hardwired for suicide, called generational depression and suicide, by the way, and you're that close to an actual suicide, chances are better that you will actually seriously think about taking your own life, having been that, that close to an actual suicide. So, yeah, it's, um, like I said, people ask me, how'd you pick suicide as a topic? Well, the topic actually picked me. It's mm. a club that nobody wants to join, but here we are. Yeah. So... Wow. That's so powerful. I'm so glad that you say the guy who worked for the insurance company's name was Greg. Uh, Graham, Graham Graham Benson, Graham Benson. Yep. Nice guy. Very perceptive, obviously. Mm -hmm. Hold on. No, don't do it. Mm. Yeah. Cause who calls up and asks how long you had a policy except somebody who wants to kill themselves when they, you know? Yeah. I'm number one. So glad that he said something to you that, that, caused you to not go through with that act and yeah, I'm, oh yeah and i'm so glad as well i'm thrilled that you brought up because i i think if i was in Graham's shoes too i'd be like what do i say and especially yeah. if you kind of know what's going on right um but to hear from you somebody who, who struggles with this that it doesn't matter what you say as long mm-hmm. as you show that you care yep that is so beautiful. I almost teared up as you were saying that. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm just thinking about how universal that is, you know, how beneficial that is for people who chron- suffer from chronic suicidality or not, you know, yeah. it's just showing them that you care. And so thank you for bringing that up. Um, that was well, beautiful. Here's the thing. People don't say something because either a, they don't know what to say or B they're worried they're going to say the wrong thing. Hmm. There's no wife's tale that you should never mention the S word suicide in front of somebody who's depressed. And I love the reasoning because it might give them the idea. Suicide. What a great idea. Why didn't <laughs> I think of that? Trust me. It crossed my mind. Mm. Uh, the, the thing is what, what I'm striving for is when people talk about a friend that died by suicide, first of all, they say, I have no idea why he killed himself. And my, my answer is generally, well, chances are he didn't want to kill himself probably just wanted to end the pain. That's what suicide's all about. And second, they'll say, well, never gave any hints. We had no idea. That's probably not the case because eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent. And nine out of 10 give hints in the last week leading up to an attempt, which tells me the vast majority of people want somebody to notice something and step in. So when I keynote, that's what I teach, signs and symptoms of depression, thoughts of suicide, what to say, what not to say, what to do, what not to do, and how to find resources. Because if you know what to look for, you know, and you're willing to step out of your comfort zone and be persistent, go with your gut. If you think something's wrong, say something. See something, say something. Are you depressed? Are you having, yeah, I mean, that, that you, anybody can save a life from suicide because it's the most preventable cause of death on the planet. But you have to be willing to ask some hard questions. Yeah, that's huge. And I feel like you spoke right to me when you were talking about the part where um, people who commit suicide don't necessarily want to die, but they want to end the pain. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know if I mentioned this in our conversation before this call, but um, 
it's hard for me to remember how old I was, fourth grade, middle school, somewhere in that realm. Uh, I remember, you know, I was bullied. There were some other things going on. And there was one day, I think it was after school, I remember going to my room and putting a belt around my neck and contemplating killing myself. And honestly, one of the biggest reasons why I didn't was because I didn't know where to hang it from. That would actually support my weight, right? Um, But when you you said that, I I look back on that moment and you're so right. I didn't necessarily want to die. I was just in so much internal pain Mm -hmm. from external and internal forces that I just wanted the pain to be gone. Yep. That's generally the case. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, a lot of neuronormal people don't realize that is the case. It's, I mean, I, and I understand why it doesn't, you know, the, if, if you don't know what to look for, if you don't know, there are signs. We, we have German shepherds, we train German shepherds and people will say mm-hmm. the dog bit me, never gave me any indication it was going to. That's not true. Uh, the beasts are hardwired to throw you signals like, if you know what to look for, if the dog is going to bite you, it freezes. Its eyes go flat, a second hint. Its ears go back. And then last but not least, you know, the hackles are raised, which should should tip you off. The dog is, is essentially screaming at you, please don't come any closer. Mm-hmm. I really don't. Go back too. What's that, darling? The gums go back, too. Gums go back. Yeah, you get that little, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the dog's basically saying, don't. Come any closer. I just don't, don't, I really don't want to bite you, but if you come any closer, I'm going to have to bite you. <laughs> so same thing with, with hints around, you know, uh, there are things you can spot when somebody is depressed, when the world is a little more normal and there are social activities, you know, the softball teams, dart tournaments, you know, whatever you happen to be involved in socially, if, if you withdraw from things you used to really take a lot of, of joy in, um, if you, um, uh, eat too much, can't eat, sleep too much, can't sleep. That's an indication you may be depressed. Uh, have difficulty giving up in the morning, but kind of rally in the afternoon. And here's one you can notice on Zoom. There's Zoom casual. Uh, my clothes are clean. But if you're depressed, oftentimes you let your personal hygiene go. You know, if you're watching Zoom and you see the hair's a little dirty, clothes aren't quite so clean, it may be because they're having trouble dragging themselves out of bed in the morning to get to the shower and then run on watch. And... I've been spending, I've been doing podcast after podcast, teaching neuronormal people, neurotypical people, how to survive the pandemic. Because I've got a keynote called Social Distancing and Staying Sane, Don't Worry About Your Mentally Ill Friends. Because as someone with mental illness is high functioning, most high functioning mentally ill people have a self-care plan. And they have other techniques they use to be able to get out of bed in the morning and move forward. And what I fear is that there are a lot of people right now who are otherwise normal, who are situationally depressed. And because they've never been depressed, they may not know what it is. They may not understand why they can't get out of bed in the morning because they've never been there before. Mm. Whereas people with mental illness wake up every day in an uncertain world, whether there's a pandemic or not, and we have to get up. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. the self-care plan, you know, the preventive maintenance, basically mine is a diet. I'm on the keto diet and I do intermittent fasting. Exercise. I got a bunch of stuff here at home, you know, the Nordic track and some stretch band. Uh, good night's sleep, meditation, and I take some medication. And I think also neuronormal people are are terrified that if you went on antidepressants, it's a life sentence. Mm. But if it's situational, it's just to the you know to things settle out, and you just taper off, and you may never have to use them again. But it takes the edge off in the meantime. Mm. And if the first one they they prescribed for you don't work there's now a dna cheek swab test they take your dna and they try to match it to the antidepressant that will that will work best with your metabolism so there's a lot less of the go on doesn't work taper off go on doesn't work taper off it's called precision medicine they're getting better and better by the day on nailing down which one of those psychotropics would work best for you wow so that's that's um what I've been is what I've been teaching. I mean, oh, um, there's something called gamification that millennial mm-hmm. people do. You make a game of it. If I can't get out of bed, I make a to-do list of six things. The game is once I scratch off number six, I don't care if it's three in the afternoon, broad daylight. I can crawl back in the bed, get my phone, fire up Disney Plus, 
and watched the second season of the uh what is it uh, mal uh, mandalorian mandalorian yeah. nice <laughs> yeah exactly uh because i win because i got stuck the idea being that if you if it gets you out of bed and putting one foot in front of the other it's not a panacea it's not a cure but it is palliative i mean it, it you know body in motion remains in motion to act upon on an outside force so it, it's just a way of getting you moving the third thing third leg of my stool as a mentally ill person is routine they ask a guy who was in the space station for a year, that's social isolation by himself. Mm -hmm. How do you handle that? It goes one word routine. I get up same time in the morning. I go to bed same time at night. I mean, roughly I eat my meals roughly the same time. I meditate twice a day, same time. I, you know, I, I do my binge watching TV. I work out same time. So you have to control the things you can control and mm -hmm. just let the rest of it go because you know, it's way above my pay grade. I can't worry about, you know, so that's what I've been teaching because I'm, I'm worried that the, the neuronormal people are really suffering during this, you know, this time because they're not used to doing those, that sort of self-care. Mm. I, I think the silver lining is all those people who are situationally depressed, when this is over, they will have a whole new respect for those of us who live with that day in, day out, mm. you know, for, for our entire lives. Yeah. So. Wow. Uh, that is so relevant, the situationally depressed people, because obviously that's, there's so many people who are struggling right now. And it makes me think a lot of, of students, right? There was um, a, a local high schooler who just last week committed suicide. And, you know, my little sister is an intern at the, at a different local high school, school system. And, you know, she sees kids who don't want to communicate they 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 feel left out they feel distance literally mm -hmm. socially distanced because they're at home by themselves and you know I, I think a lot of the things that you just spoke to can be really helpful for you know like a healthy family environment where parents can spot certain things how the kids yeah. are taking care of themselves and whatnot but i think one of my big fears and concerns and i'd love to hear if you have thoughts here is what about those kids who are in a home environment that's not healthy? And, and, you know, all the teachers can see is maybe their clothes look kind of dirty, but then also what can the teachers do? Like, you, you know what I mean? Like there's so much room for bad things can happen for bad things to happen. Yes. And the instances of, of domestic abuse and child abuse have spiked during the pandemic because everybody's home together. Mm -hmm. And, there are children for whom school is daily is a refuge. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, so for some kids, home is a refuge from school and others school is a, a refuge from home. Mm -hmm. So I worry, I worry about the, those incidents. And let's say you have a child and they, they are exhibiting those signs I mentioned of depression. You have to ask them, ask anybody in this situation, are you having thoughts of suicide? A very difficult question to ask, but should be asked just that plainly. And if you can't ask it, find somebody who can utter those words. The question comes, what if they're not forthcoming about their thoughts of suicide? They go, no, you know, I'm fine. Well, there are signs. If they're talking about death and dying, Google death and dying. If death and dying appears as a theme in their writing, their artwork, their music. I've got a friend whose son died by suicide. He was addicted to heroin. She thought he was just an addict. You know, had a substance use disorder. What turns out was he was self-medicating for, I believe, bipolar disorder. And he was a musician and he wrote lyrics and, you know, uh, and so forth. And he had a notebook where he wrote all his songs and the music and the lyrics. And he would never, it never left his hand. He would take it to the bathroom with him because he never wanted his mom to see what was in the notebook. And so when he passed away, she got, of course, a hold of the notebook and I mean, as you're flipping through the pages, you can just see, she said, you can see the suicide coming by the darkness in the lyrics. So that's the sign. Uh, giving your personal affairs in order. And for young people, giving away prized possessions. You, because you want to make sure those go to the people you want them to go to when you're gone. Mm. Uh, acquiring the means, stockpiling medication or buying a gun. And here's one that I think is counterintuitive and extremely dangerous. They were depressed forever and then happy for no reason. And you're happy because thank the Lord they're happy. Mm. Problem is they may be happy because they've chosen time, place, and method, and they know the pain is finite. 
That's mm-hmm. the danger there. So mm-hmm. here's what you don't say to somebody who's depressed. Uh, you're being melodramatic. You're just looking for attention. Nobody who talks about it ever does it. Those things are all faults. Mm-hmm. Here's what you do say. Again, do you have a plan? If you have a plan, what is your plan? If it's detailed, you got to get them on the phone with the suicide prevention lifeline. If they won't pick up the phone, you pick up the phone and the volunteer on the other end will do their best to talk the phone into the hand of the person who's in crisis. If it's a younger person, text the word help to 741741 because younger people tend to be more forthcoming in text than they are on the phone. Mm-hmm. If they're a danger to themselves or others, immediately you got no choice but to dial 911. Now, last thing, let's say they've got a plan, but it's not particularly well formed. They don't really have time, place, and method. And my question always is, well, tell me something. You're going to kill yourself? And if they say no, my next question is, okay, well, tell me why not. Make them give voice to whatever it is that's keeping them here. Mm. So that's, that's the protocol. That's what I teach when I do a keynote, those things. So that you can spot the signs, symptoms, you know, what to look for, what to listen for, and then what to do and what not to do. Mm. Can you, that's super helpful. And can you run back through, there were, there were three things that you listed off that, that help you get through a day, especially during a pandemic. I I remember the third one was routine. I I, I forget what the first and second were. First one was a self-care plan, diet, exercise, um, Diet, exercise, diet, exercise, meditation, medication. Oh, good night's sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, number two was gamification. Make a game mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, when you do something, then you get a reward. And it may be something as simple as going back to bed, pull the covers over your head in broad daylight. Mm-hmm. And then routine being the third leg. Mm-hmm. And and we, my two co-authors and I have written, we're writing a four book series on men's mental health. And two of the books are out on Amazon. Third one should come out shortly. And then fourth one next year. And sort of chicken soup for the soul. 12 stories of guys in each book. Each man talking about some struggle he's having and how he's coping. Mm -hmm. And the reason we did that is because 8 out of 10 people who die by suicide in the U.S. now are men. So it's an endangered species. And because men tend not to seek help. You know, when I grew up in the South, big boys don't cry. So... I mean, I'm, when I go on stage and get choked up, that's something that, you know, men just don't do. Yeah. And which makes it that much more powerful to see somebody up there, you know, being vulnerable like that. And, you know, as I say, I, Big and Rich is a singing duo. And my favorite song is somebody's got to be unafraid to lead the freak parade. That's my job. Mm-hmm. I get up and wave my freak flag <laughs> and I rally my troops, my tribe. Um, give them cover to give voice to their experiences and, you know, and their feelings without recrimination. I, my job, my goal then, because people are like, what's your goal? My goal is to make talking about suicide as easy as talking about the weather. So that's why I'm so frank, part of the pun, when I talk about <laughs> it, you know, and yeah, I mean, I talk about it like the weather and people go, you are rather blunt on this topic. Mm. <laughs> you know, you put a gun in your mouth, you taste the gun oil, it kind of, you know, um, makes you... You know, I mean, I'm 64. I haven't got time to screw around. Uh, you know, if we're going to get this done, I got to do it. I'm on borrowed time and upside down alone at this point. So, yeah. So anyway, that's, that's, those are the protocols. That's what you do. That's what you look out for, you know. And, and there may be people in the audience listening now, watching, who are struggling, may, may even have um, chronic suicidality and didn't know it had a name. I mean, we may have saved a life today just by talking about it out loud. That's the good news I tell the audience. Look. Here's the deal. You can make a difference. You can save a life and you can do it by doing something as simple as what we're doing right here. Mm-hmm. Starting the conversation. Amen. Anybody can stop a suicide. That's so good. And that's a huge aspect of this podcast. A whole, a huge part of the mission is to, is to make having these conversations easier or more, not necessarily easier, but more common. Like you said, we, yeah. we need to be able to talk about these things. And you bring up an amazing point, especially men. One of the things that stuck out to me when you were first starting to talk about, you know, your, your transition from being a full-time comedian to now being a, a TED talk, a TED speaker, you know, and being mm-hmm. a coach is you talking about vulnerability. And as a man, I was, I, I wanted to stop you, but I also wanted to hear your story. <laughs> I, I wanted to, I want to know, like, what was the driver that, that brought you to making that change in your career path to go up in front of people and, you know, you're vulnerable as a comedian in one way. 
Yeah. But then now you're comp- it's a whole another kind of vulnerability. So what was what was the driving force there? Well, I always wanted to make a living and a difference. I mean, mm. doing comedy is good. You make people happy for 45 minutes, but I wanted to make a, a greater impact. Mm. And to make a difference as a speaker, you need something, you know, to teach them. You need takeaways, learning objectives, action items. And I could never figure out what I had to teach anybody. And then after I put the gun in my mouth and after I realized what my family history, you know, with the generational depression and suicide, that that really was, I mean, it's organic to me. And I, I read a book actually by a woman named Judy Carter called The, the Message. Oh, yes. The Message the of copy. You. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, subtitle, Turn Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. And so as I got into the book, I thought I got nothing. But halfway through, because she walks you through, it's almost fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. Halfway through, I thought, oh, I do have something to talk about. I do have something that makes my heart sing, something mm-hmm. that makes, raises the hair on my arms, You know, something that means something to somebody. You make a difference. Mm-hmm. I just had to rebrand. And that's why I did the TEDx because that proves to anybody who wants to book me that I can talk about something serious with, you know, with humor along the way, but that I really can talk about something serious and that, that, and then you do five of them and they realize, yeah, five talks on mental health. Well, as a comedian, that's that's impressive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm working on, I've got three ideas in my head right now. I'm pitching some, you know, pitch one and pitch the other one, pitch the next one. They go back to the first one. So in hopes of getting, landing another TEDx on mental, on some aspect of mental health or the other. So, yeah, I, I think, again, people ask me, why'd you pick suicide, depression as the topics? Well, it, again, it, you know, it picked me. My my best students for TEDx and speaker coaching are the ones that it's, whatever it is they're passionate about, it's organic. Mm-hmm. You know, it's part, I got a young woman I was helping who has narcolepsy. She, had, she wrote a book on narcolepsy. She has a foundation, a sleep foundation. She, you know, she's keynotes on, narcolepsy and she she didn't know she had it until she's in law school mm. and she thought she was just she thought everybody was that tired sleeping mm-hmm. she went to see a sleep doctor and he goes no honey yours is a different kind of tired you have a sleep disorder you have narcolepsy so that's i mean it's part of her i mean it's you know you can wake her up you can wake her up and ask her to do 45 minutes on narcolepsy you know from REM sleep to keynote, and I'm sure she could knock out 45 without breathing hard and, you know, in her nightgown. So that's what, that's what I'm always looking for with my speakers is something that they're passionate about, something that means something to them that, you know, that can possibly change other people's lives. And, mm. and usually when I, when we hit on it, you can tell because they light up, their voice changes, they get more energetic. You know, they, I'm like, okay, that's it right there. That's, that's the, uh, mm. Yeah, I've got a, one of my clients is transgender, and Seth, he was born a woman, now a man, and we were casting about for, you know, he wants to do a TEDx, and so I said, well, you know, tell me about yourself. He goes, well, I, um, I applied to the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and I didn't have great grades or good SAT scores, but they asked for an essay, and I wrote it on the difficulty of being transgender, and that's what got me in. He said, here's the catch. I was the first transgender student they had. So we're all standing there outside the dorms. There's a boy's dorm and a girl's dorm, and there's a boy's bathroom and a girl's bathroom. And we're kind of like, hmm, um, I think these are going to have to be converted to um, gender neutral <laughs> bathrooms. And I'm not sure exactly where we're going to house you right away because, you know, um, he was in the middle of transition. So still physically a woman, but, um, you know, uh, appears to be a man outwardly and, and living as a man. So I said, man, that, that's a great story. You're like the kids in Arkansas who integrated that school with the National Guard standing by. I mean, different situation, but you were the first one. You were isolated because they had to put you in a room by yourself without a roommate because you give him girl roommate, boy roommate. And then when he graduated, he applied to be in the Air Force during the Obama years. Mm-hmm. And of course, transgender was not a problem. Mm-hmm. So he sold his car, he quit his job, he moved to Colorado to be, you know, to go to the Air Force Academy or whatever. And then the current administration after he'd done all that, you know, the car, the, you know, his job moved. Mm-hmm. They said, no, no transgender. It was like being African-American in World War II. I want to be a pilot. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I bet you do. You're going to be waiting tables. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference is they let African-Americans in the Air Force. They gave them horrible jobs. Didn't, make, didn't let them be pilots until the Tuskegee Airmen. 
but in this case, they wouldn't even let him in the Air Force. So it's going to be a great TEDx talk. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that kind of experience where you're the first, you know, and then you try to get in the Air Force and it's so close. And yeah, he's, he's an interesting cat. And, uh, and, and I think that will save lives if somebody who's thinking about, you know, somebody's transgender sees that YouTube video because that's what changed his life. He saw a YouTube video about somebody making the transition. And he, because th he thought he was a lesbian. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, he, and he saw the video and he goes, oh my God, that's me. Wow. And that changed his life. Yeah. So that's the power of putting it up on YouTube and going around the world. You never know the impact mm -hmm. I have on somebody. That's, that's, the, that's one of the reasons this, I do the TEDx talks is people email me occasionally or DM me and say, you know, I saw your TED talk, thought I was all by myself. Mm -hmm. You know, thank you for being vulnerable. It probably saved my life. You know, yeah. I get choked up <laughs> as I'm breathing it, but that's my, you know, that's my purpose and my, my passion. Yeah, man. I love this because, you know, I, I truly, and clearly you do. I, I so much believe in the power of story and. Oh yeah, Lord. Oh yeah. And, and we all have a story and to just repeat what you've been saying this whole time is that our own stories will save other people's lives by sharing it. And I love that the way that you frame it, the way, the way reality is, because everybody has a story, everybody can use their voice. Everybody can speak up about whatever their experiences are and make an impact. I think that what you do is incredible. And, um, you know, I, as I was listening to this Ted talk, the, a matter of life or of laugh or death, I was scrolling through the comments. And I was reading from those people who, who responded to you or commented to you saying like, wow, this is speaking right to me. I, I relate in so many ways, you know, like people, I even saw comments in here. Like I'm just waiting for my mom to pass and then I'm going to do it. Yeah. Like some dark stuff. Um, but probably never, probably never told anybody else in writing or otherwise. Exactly. And you're opening up that conversation. And so I think, and maybe this sounds obvious, but that person finally coming out and saying that is probably the first step closer towards them not committing suicide someday. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And usually I try to respond to everybody who writes DMs, whatever, to, you know, let them know. I'm, I had a guy in Europe, uh, Scandinavia, sent me a note. He depressed, 40 years old, lovely wife, great job, darling eight-year-old daughter. Said he couldn't remember the last time he was happy. Thought it was just him. Mm. And he was you know, going, scrolling around on YouTube, found my video and said, I, I realized the first time in my life, I'm not alone. And he emailed me, I emailed back. I said, look, when you are ready, I believe you should tell your family and other people, you know, love and trust what you're going through because they need to know that because when the wheels come off, they need to be there for you. Yeah. So hopefully at some point he will share what he shared with me mm -hmm. with, with them. So again, that's the power of starting the conversation, giving somebody, permission to give voice to it, whether it's a, you know, a DM or, you know, an email, a YouTube comment. That's, that's the power. And, and I told Seth, my transgender friend, he said, I'm not a professional speaker. I said, look, Seth, they'd much rather have a, somebody who's a, you know, a decent speaker with a fabulous idea than a sparklingly good speaker with a pedestrian idea. Mm. And you've got a great story. I mean, you're, you know, you, you, he was hospitalized, you know, cause of, Dys, uh, dys, dysmorphia, I guess. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so uh, came close to suicide. You know, he's got a story about his mom accepting him. His dad is still, you know, never mean, but not quite a great relationship. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, there's, and there's something in there where it's, you know, they were choosing his name. He and his mom were mm -hmm. choosing his male name. So she got the baby book out and she showed him the names they'd chosen if he had been, been born a boy. Mm hmm. And he said, the two choices were Nigel and Seth. And he goes, did, did you, uh, yeah, it didn't take long. <laughs> yeah. Nigel. Uh, so he chose Seth. And then when he came down for his birthday that year, his mom had baked a cake. He chokes me up saying it. And she put on the cake and the icing, happy birthday, Seth. I said, man, the ice is going to be weeping at that point. Yeah. And if there's somebody in the audience who is having similar feelings or, or goes to YouTube as you did and sees this story and says to themselves, that's me. 
mm. you know, could save a life. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Uh, it's it's crazy how hearing the story, you know, like third person, not directly from Seth, you can already you can sense you can just feel the power in it. And I'm sure that the people listening to this can as well. You know, it's just as you were saying that it was gonna make you weepy just saying it. I'm like I'm oh, feeling yeah. the same way. I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> bro, like how am I gonna be yeah. able to interview this guy if I'm crying? Uh quit <laughs> making me cry, damn it. <laughs> yeah. Well and and some of my stories, when I, I always rehearse out loud for my TEDx's and whatever. And as I'm walking the dogs, or, and there are stories in there that when the first time I told them to myself, I wept. Mm-hmm. And so what I do, because people ask me, how am I going to get through this without weeping? I said, well, you need to tell the story out loud to yourself enough times so that when you tell it, you still get a little catch in your voice. The audience knows you're on the verge of tears, but you don't break down. Mm-hmm. They know. Because if you are that close, they will be that close. Mm. You know, they may even shed a tear or two because they know, you know, how painful it is for you because they can tell just by the way you're vocalized. Mm. So that's, uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes I do it 15, 20 times before I get through it without weeping. Mm. But, you know, that's the power. That's again, as you said, the power of story. Because mm. when I tell it, I'm right back there. Yeah. That's that's what good comedy because comics say to me, you know, funny things happen to me, but I can't really translate them to the stage. You need to take the people to wherever it was, mm. paint the picture vividly enough so they're there with you mm. and they can feel whatever you were feeling at the time. Yeah. So it's so good. Frank, you have you've shared you've been vulnerable. You've you've <laughs> yeah, shared <laughs> you've been vulnerable. You've you know provided a, a lightheartedness to some really difficult things and you've shared some amazing takeaways the the signs and symptoms that's going to like we keep saying like you sharing all these things is going to save lives and um yeah. i think that there's probably not been a better time to release oh, this episode than, than now yeah um so you know i want to i want to thank you so much for all that you've shared right now and um you know, being respectful of your time. I know we're a little over actually right now, but I've been finishing every single interview with a few questions and I would love to ask those three right now. Let's do it. All right, Frank, the first one is after everything that you've said today, if you were to leave the listeners with one anecdote, one message, whether you've explicitly said it today or not, what would that be? That understand that people with mental illness are like the Greek character Sisyphus. Mm. I don't know if you remember Sisyphus from your, I don't know if you took uh, mythology in high school. We did. Sisyphus, his uh, crime was he gave five, he was like a, like half God, half human child of somebody's Mm -hmm. on Olympus. And he gave fire to man, which he was not supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And so his punishment was he, he had to roll a rock up a hill every day with the idea if he could get it over the hill, then he could retire. But if you know the story, you know, he rolled it up the hill every day and it would get near the top and then it would roll back down to the bottom every day. Having a mental illness is something like that. Every morning you wake up, there's a rock and a hill. And some days the rock is small and the hill's not so steep. And some days the rock is a boulder and the hill is Kilimanjaro. But every day, Regardless, there's a rock and a hill and you've got to move the rock. And my goal is, whoever hears my voice, when they wake up in the morning, they're still able to move that rock. Mm. That's huge. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, yeah. Um, The second question for you, Frank, would be, if you could define vulnerability in your own words, how would you do so? I think, and Brene Brown said it best, Mm. having mental illness, I am so comfortable in my darkness, you know, sharing my darkness, sitting in my darkness, that I am am comfortable sitting with you in yours Mm. by exposing myself as mentally ill so that Mm. we don't have any secrets. That's the vulnerability. You know, I'm, I'm flawed. I'm, I'm weak in that way. And that, that gives me, that allows me to sit with people who have similar feelings. And, you know, we, we have, uh, I think it, it's a young woman in, in college, I did a college show in Lynchburg, Lynchburg college. 
And she came up afterwards. She goes, can I give you a hug? And I'm thinking, oh, great. This is like in the middle of the Me Too movement. Everybody's got a camera. <laughs> oh, God. You know, I can see the front page of the newspaper in Lynchburg, you know, uh, speaker gropes co-in. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I gave her a very brotherly, pushed my pelvis back as far as I could hug. And the, I said, are you a hugger? She goes, no. I said, well, what was, what was with the hug? She goes, well, I'm sitting in the back of the room. She goes, 15 minutes into your keynote, I'm thinking, this guy's inside my freaking head. She goes, I've been in therapy for two years, and the young woman is my therapist is very good. She's got degrees hanging on the wall. She knows her stuff, but she has no context, no idea what I'm going through. Mm. 15 minutes into yours, that's, that's, that, 45 minutes with you is worth four, two years with her. I mean, mm. that was more than I got out of two years with her. That's that, by, by, by being vulnerable and exposing yourself as having you know, these issues, it just it gives other people permission to, you know, you connect immediately. When I say to the audience in the beginning, I can tell you what the barrel of my gun tastes like, you can see the mentally ill people lean forward. Mm. And the neuronormal people lean back like, oh dear God. <laughs> but I connect immediately with the people in the audience who have mental illness. Because they're a little skeptical when they first see me, because I'm pretty high functioning. I'm funny, you know, comedian. Mm -hmm. Up here to have it all together. And then when I say that, you can just see them lean in. Mm. Ah. So... You know, that's, I would say that's vulnerability. It's, it's just going up and, you know, because people say to me on podcasts all the time, anything you don't want to talk about, oh, uh, look, I got no secrets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, ask me anything you like, I'm fine. I love that, Frank. That's it's really good. I believe in that so much. Um, and, you know, it has me thinking of, I've mentioned it on my podcast a few times, but my first time going to see my counselor who specializes in OCD, I had communicated with her over email a little bit. Uh, she wanted to know what I wanted to see her for. And I told her that I struggle with OCD, intrusive thoughts. The anxiety is at, at times debilitating. Mm -hmm. And I remember going into her office the first time. And after saying hi, the very first thing she said to me was, she, without using her words, she told me exactly what intrusive thoughts she struggled with, how oh. her OCD has affected her. Wow. And I immediately felt like, holy shit, I can share what's going on with me, you know? I don't have to explain this to her. Yeah, exactly. And so you're she doing that it. to so many people. And there's this perceived weakness by some, perhaps, of your chronic suicidality and the depression mm -hmm. that you're making your strength, man. So Well, and people have said to me, have you taken resilience training? I said, hey, mm -hmm. look, here's the deal. My most resilient friends are the ones that are suicidal. Otherwise, they wouldn't still be here. Mm. So we should be teaching resilience, not taking resilience. Mm. I mean, for, for neuronormal people, resilience training is probably a good idea, you know, become more resilient. But for us, if we're still alive, mm. <laughs> uh, chances <laughs> are we're resilient, you know. Absolutely. That's so good. All right, Frank, the very last question for you is, little bit more lighthearted. If you could share with me your favorite food, that'd be awesome because I'm a big food guy. Oh, um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, well, you know, I'm on the keto diet, so mm -hmm. no carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what it was. When I was a kid, it was Krispy Kreme donuts. Ooh. Yeah, back then they cooked them in beef tallow. There's none of this vegetable oil nonsense. Whoa. Yeah, I used to go in there when they had counter service. You know, you sit on a stool. I put a $20 bill on the counter, and there's a little lady behind the counter with a paper hat. Mm -hmm. And I go, excuse me, paper hat lady. Okay, there's a twenty dollar bill. Bring donuts to me until either the twenty's gone or I'm face down in a pool of my own saliva. <laughs> Crullers, you know the, the original um, honey bun. Oh God, I just yeah, deep fat fried covered in sugar. Mm. And we used to go when the light would come on, and you knew they were hot. Mm. You know, and you have to eat it with a spoon practically because it oh, just yeah. came off the conveyor. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. <laughs> It'd be a short, happy life. Oh, man. I love it. Hey, you know, keto's good. My dad was doing keto for quite a long time. Um, and there's still some um, some yummy food that's keto. So Yeah, sour cream, butter, mm -hmm. cheese. <laughs> this will, yeah, yeah, you can make it work, man, for sure. How long have you been on the keto diet? Uh, Two years. Um, Two years nice. I'm down about 148. I'm done. To, I'm at 148 pounds, and I have about 10% body fat thanks to the keto and the intermittent fasting. Wow, 
That's I impressive. did my first bodybuilding contest in 18, 2018. No way. So you did your first contest at, would that 63? You said you're 65, I think. Yeah, I'm 64, so I did it at 62. Wow. Well, I waited till then because, I may have a picture here, I can show you. Um, I waited till then because I figured I would never, I always wanted to do it. It was on my bucket list. But, you know, mm-hmm. I'm, I, when I was, yeah, I, I got fine bones. <laughs> you know, uh, I knew as a 20-year-old, I would never, ever, I mean, I wouldn't even have a chance because there are so many huge people. But I figured by 60, pretty much everybody else had given up. There you go. <laughs> and uh, you know what? They were, I competed in two categories and they were, they give trophies first five places and both categories, there were only three of us. So uh, wow. I said, you know, how'd you do? I came in third. I never tell anybody there was nobody in fourth or fifth. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, uh, it's like I said, it's on my bucket list. And I was, I had two contests lined up for this year. And of course, Oh man. But, uh, see, I don't know if you can, can you see that? Oh, I can. Jeez. I'm, that's uh that's some vascularity for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's about 9% body fat right there. Uh, and wow. you see that if you look closely down the middle of my chest, there's a titanium twist ties holding my rib cage together from the two aortic <laughs> valve replacements. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. It was, uh, yeah. And, and when you get to be my age, it's not about size so much as it, as it is muscularity, vascularity and proportion. Hmm. So I don't have to be huge. Mm. Just have to, you know, uh, look. It's all about the look. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's and I, I'm hoping to go pro by the time I turn 65, which is a little less than a year. I love it. I believe yeah. you can do it. Yeah, it's uh, it's going to be well. See, go pro. You have to win your category. You know, like uh, whatever it is, and then you have to win the overall. Oh wow! But in true natural contests, where they they polygraph you before the event, see if you're doing any kind of whatever, and they urine test you afterwards to make sure you're not you know Mm. doing steroids or human growth hormone whatever it is so at least i got a shot because the other natural contest not even close (laughs) the women i'm standing next to a woman and my my posing coach goes frank you can look bigger i said not standing next to her i can't (laughs) she's an animal oh man yeah oh god yeah it's um so yeah that's that, and I, by the way, this, uh, that's something I advise people as well as part of a safe self-care plan. Mm. Pick something as a hobby or avocation that you can do and excel at that has nothing to do with what you do for a living. Mm. You know, the lifting weights, bodybuilding has nothing to do with what I, the comedy and the speaking. Mm-hmm. But it allows me to see progress and excel and, you know, and I got to do the contest. And, you mm. know, I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. and here's the thing about the gym. It's no matter where you are in the world, a 25 pound dumbbell weighs 25 pounds. So it's mm-hmm. very consistent. Mm-hmm. Now, the machines may have different names, but they all have the same function. You know, there's the ones I use back home. So it's comforting to walk into a gym because, mm-hmm. you know, you feel like you come home, even though you're, you know, in Portugal or wherever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. I love that. That's so good, Frank. And, uh, you know, good luck. I hope that next year we're, we're able to actually have some contests some competitions for <laughs> yeah, you. I'll be rooting for you to go pro, man. And the very last thing before I let you go today, please just share where people can find more about you, the work that you do, your books, all that good stuff. Please shamelessly plug. TheMentalHealthComedian.com, TheMentalHealthComedian.com. My phone number's there, email address is there, and the first book, I'm narrating the books. And I narrated it for Audible, and then I asked my editor, audio editor to give me an MP3 copy. And so I'll put that on my website. So if you put in an email address, you could download a free unabridged copy of the first book with me narrating it, the one on men's mental health. Awesome. So, and if you go to the TEDx, your TEDxcoach.com, your TEDx coach. Yeah. There's a free PDF there. And the title is the six things you can do to kill your chances of landing a TEDx. <laughs> <laughs> and that's free as well. So awesome. it's, uh, yeah, it's anyway, it's, um, and by the way, I have a little touch of OCD as well. Mm. Uh, yeah. Uh, just in, just enough to eat the same thing every day. <laughs> mm. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep. uh, it, it, it actually is actually an asset. If you know, I'm, when I was younger, I had difficulty with it. I was, it was just, you know, it's okay until it causes dysfunction. It yeah. gets in your way. Mm-hmm. And when I was younger, for a variety of reasons, I had, it was getting in the way. But nowadays I just turned it on when I need to, you know, to diet down or I did a five day fast two weeks mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, I just use that little talent to uh you know 
to do those things like like that. So. I love it. I love it. You have to equip it as a strength for sure. Yeah. Frank, thank you so much. Seriously, thank you for your incredible ability to tell a story, to to share a message, to share signs and symptoms, to just thanks for it all, man. It's this conversation's been so powerful. I've really enjoyed it, and it's it's going to save lives. So thank well, you. Well, and you should consider a TEDx talk because I'm sure there are lots of people out there with OCD. Mm. I've got a friend who um, was 21 years old before he knew he had it. He knew mm. something was wrong. His mm. only diagnosis was from his grandfather, who said that guy that kid screwed up in the head. <laughs> um, he's listened to a radio show, and he said, "Look, we have 10, 10 symptoms that you may have OCD." And so, you know, just, and he's, he's checking them off one right after another, right after another, all 10. And it was such a relief to know that it had a name. Mm. He, he thought he was some kind of freak. Mm. And, and here's, here's what I did last time I stayed at his house and he wasn't there. He puts all his shoes in the closet with the toes pointing north. Mm-hmm. So before I left, <laughs> I went in the closet and I turned every other pair south. <laughs> And a day later, I got a phone call. I go, you son of a... I can't believe it. <laughs> wow, that's awesome. I love it. Oh, you, you must have a good relationship with him to, to be yes. able to do that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Can I leave you with a joke, actually, about the Please. OCD? I would, okay. love, I would love that. His son's eight years old. They're flying somewhere. Son's first time on a plane. Son's well aware of his OCD. Although you think, you know, you think kids don't notice things, but they just mm. suck at it. You know, they mm. suck it up like a sponge. So anyway, they're sitting there and the flight attendant goes, um, if you're traveling with a child, put your mask on first and then put the mask on the child. And his son looks up at him and says, dad, we both know that's not going to happen. How do we know that's not going to happen? Well, you're going to be busy cleaning your mask while I pass out. <laughs> oh my God. That's brilliant. Wow. Oh my God. You wouldn't just act because it is, I mean, that tells you the kids are paying attention yeah and they know what's going on and that, what a brilliant way to say it. <laughs> that's unreal i love that yeah anyway wow i love it well thank you frank thank you for ending with a joke really appreciate it you've been hey, you've been a blast to have on you know comics gotta end on a high note absolutely all, all right frank Tommy. you take care now man thank we'll you so much you. see ya what a powerful episode I'm just, Frank has this incredible gift of being able to bring us through the the wide array of emotions in his story, in in the way that he shares it. He's got an incredible gift for bringing humor into some really dark subjects, for, you know, having us laugh one second to having us nearly in tears another second, you know, just so powerful. And I'm so grateful that he's with us. I'm so grateful that he uh, could spend some time with me and, and share his story and share a message of hope for all of you as well. You know, one of my biggest takeaways from this, this conversation was when he was talking about when he called his insurance agent to see how long he had had his life insurance policy. But really, he was calling to see if he committed suicide, would his wife be getting a million bucks or not? And when the insurance agent realized what he was doing or why he was asking the question, he said, don't do it. It's just so powerful. When, when Frank was explaining that, explaining that it's often in those moments of somebody coming to you who, you know, is considering suicide, it can be uncomfortable. You don't really know what the right thing to say is, but Frank mentioned that it doesn't often matter what you say all that matters is that you step out of your comfort zone and you say something and that insurance agent saying something as simple as don't do it saved a life that day there's just so much power in that and uh man Let's all remember that. Let's be the people who will say something in those moments. I'm just, I'm so grateful for, for, I'm grateful for Frank. I'm so grateful for you all listening because by you all listening to this episode, you get to learn how you can possibly save a life someday by speaking up 
And perhaps Frank's message really hit home for you. Maybe you struggle with depression and you're in a difficult, dark place. But now hopefully this helps you to see that things can get better. If you get the right help, you keep on going. I appreciate you all so much. If you're looking for a way to support this podcast, one of the best ways to do it is to share it. To share it with anybody who would help. On social media, text your friends, text your family members, however you need to communicate this message out there. That helps to support the podcast, but also to support people. Because that's what supporting this podcast is really all about, is supporting people. If you also want to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, that really helps people to find the show as well. You know, I'm just so grateful for all the support that you show week in, week out. We're up over 4,500 listens since this podcast released, which I'm just so grateful I think about that. I'm like, man, 4,500 times people have sat down and taken their precious time to listen to what I and my amazing guests have had to say. What a blessing that is. Thank you for listening. You are amazing. I hope you all have an amazing weekend and a great start to your week. You all take care. Thank you.